0: Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative
1: Podcast, where I speak with creative entrepreneurs, artists, and other insanely interesting people to hear their stories Learn about their molding moments, tipping points, and spectacular takeoffs.
0: We go sell deep. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease.
1: Esme, welcome to the Unmistakable Creative. Thanks for taking the time to join us.
4: Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here.
1: Yeah. So, you know, I got your story by wind of a a couple of different venues. Uh, You know, one was our former guest, um, Bridget Lyons. And, you know, I looked at it and I thought, yeah, this is a story I want to tell. So on that note, um, can you tell us uh, a bit about your background, your journey, and how that has led you into the work that you're doing today?
4: Okay. So I think where I probably want to start is when I was diagnosed with bipolar disorder as a teenager. That was a time where, you know, they were telling me, okay, the things you're going through, which I thought were just insane and terrible. And I wasn't sleeping for like a week at a time and doing a million projects at once and then crashing and crying all the time and all of that stuff. So being diagnosed with bipolar disorder at that age was rough going, but I definitely still had this idea of achievement that was really important to me. And I could go into, you know, my parents being Taiwanese immigrants and coming to this country and having ideas about what their kids would turn out to be like. But uh, so achievement was how I kind of kept my sense of self afloat during that time. So it was like, okay, well all this stuff is going on. I'm taking tons of pills all the time and I'm feeling absolutely crazy, but at least I'm good at school. At least I am i was getting some essays published um, at the time and by the end of high school, I'd gotten into Yale. So I was like, awesome, I'm going to Yale. I'm not broken. This is great. So I go across the country and I start school at Yale. And so I kind of jokingly, Um, I'm working on an essay right now called Yale Will Not Save You, but Mm -hmm. that's basically how I feel about it because I got there and yeah, Yale did not save me. I immediately began to have difficulties. I lasted a semester and a half. And um, in terms of like the ugly stuff that happened while I was there, it was mostly my, um, I guess I would call it my illness, progressing. I was spending time like punching trees um, and like running around and crying all the time and writing a bunch of nonsense in class when I was supposed to be taking notes. It was just like a bunch of words that didn't make sense. And after I was hospitalized twice while I was there, they actually asked me to leave. So that was kind of the beginning of feeling like I was failing, like I was a failure, but it was for something about me that I couldn't control. And I really felt like they were telling me, because you are broken, we are not letting you stay here. Okay, so then fast forward a little bit of time. I I took some time between that and my next step, which was going to Stanford. So I transferred schools. I went to Stanford. And I start there. You know, this is like my quote-unquote fresh start. But again, things just got even weirder. I started having hallucinations. I remember the first time I had a hallucination, I was, you know, in like the hallway and I heard a voice telling me that it hated me. And I remember walking into my dorm room and I was sharing the dorm room with someone else. And I said to my roommate, I said, I think I just heard a voice telling me that it hated me and she looked at me and said you're totally crazy <laughs> so that was the beginning of uh, a period in my life where i was you know i would be walking across campus through a parking lot look into the car near me and i there's like a dead corpse in the passenger seat with maggots coming out of its eyes and things like that so I'm at Stanford and I'm having these these symptoms that are getting worse and I'm trying to figure out, okay, where where am I going with this? I feel like I should be this high achiever. I've always been a high achiever, but things are getting worse mentally for me. It was around this time that I was also, which is sounds like a side note, I was getting more serious about writing. So I'd always been serious about writing, but Stanford has a really good... Um, program called the Stegner program. And so their undergraduate program is also pretty good about creative writing. And it was around this time that I started taking writing more seriously. I developed relationships with mentors and peers who are also really involved in writing. So that was something that I took a lot of refuge in. So I go and I decide to go to graduate school for an MFA in writing, which again, for my parents, I mean, that's a whole other story. But Mm -hmm. anyway, so I go and I I'm going to study to get my MFA and things are spiraling. It's not good. Um, I, Till that point, I had been, you know, having almost like two lives, like the life in which I'm a good achiever and a high achiever and then the life in which I'm having hallucinations and dodging imaginary demons like on my way to my work and things like that. So in graduate school, I'm taking my writing very seriously. I'm writing up to eight hours a day, just really seriously working on my first novel. So after I finished graduate school, that story of brokenness I'd been carrying with me, but the one that I'd been fending off for a long time was really nipping at my heels until it basically came to a head in 2013. So in 2013 is when I began experiencing something called Cotard's delusion. And Cotard's delusion is actually a pretty rare delusion, but people who have Cotard's delusion believe that they're dead. So it was a really awful time in my life, as you can imagine. Um, and I remember going to my psychiatrist and I go into her office and I'm having this horrible delusion where sometimes I think I've actually entered heaven. And then other times I think that I'm in hell, literally in hell, which is awful. And she says to me, this is, I think pretty much the first thing she said to me during that appointment. She said, you have a medication resistant form of schizoaffective disorder, which is a kind of schizophrenia. And she said, there's really nothing we can do at this point in terms of medication like you. And then she proceeded to try and tell me about different kinds of therapy I could do and things like that. But I was just crying. <laughs> um, and then the in the months after that, which were also horrible, um, you know, I was having my therapist at the time tell me things like, you know, it's not realistic for you to think that you can be back at ninety percent or ninety-five percent ever again. And that was really, really awful. At the same time, I was I continued to write and I was working on this essay while I was having the guitars delusion about the experience of having guitars delusion. So in terms of what I'm doing now, I think the story of what ended up happening with that essay kind of gets at that. Mm-hmm. So after I came out of the guitar's Delusion, and that whole medical time during my life is pretty complicated, but I'll just say that I came out of the Cotard's Delusion. And I finished writing the essay, which was called Perdition Days. And I think what really struck me about what ended up happening with that essay is idea of writing my way through the story of things that have happened to me. And when that I finished that essay, I it was pretty much the first serious personal essay I'd written. I'd written a novel before and I had a literary agent and she's still trying to find a home for it. But so I wrote this essay and I found a home for that essay. It was published I think only like a little bit over a month ago. And since then it's been mentioned on long reads. It's been mentioned in the New Yorker online and this is still in the works, but I've actually been contacted by someone who wants to option the TV film rights for it. And so that's being negotiated by my agent right now. And all of that was not something I would have expected at all. So I feel like I've been talking a long time. Keep going. I won't stop you. But um, so I think right now I'm still going through the story. But for me, the story that I feel like my life has been holding for me is this idea of narratives of brokenness Mm -hmm. that we carry with ourselves. And when I talk to people, I feel like pretty much everyone that I know has a narrative of brokenness that they carry in some way. And then for me, the idea of writing through the story, like that's my way of dealing with it. Other people have other ways. Mm-hmm. But so for me, it's been writing. And and that's, I think I'll stop there for now. Cool.
1: Amazing. So as you can imagine, there's a lot of stuff that I want to actually <laughs> uh, dig into in a bit more depth.
4: Sure.
1: You know, I, I want to go back to something that you said at the very beginning,
4: mm-hmm.
1: uh, only because I can relate to this idea of, This, you know, sense of self that is incredibly tied to achievement. And I'm curious, how do we develop a sense of self without achievement? Because I think that seems to me like one of the most critical things we could do to get to a point of happiness. And actually, amazingly enough, it would lead to a lot more achievement.
4: I totally agree. And I won't say that it's not something that I still struggle with, because I think it's ingrained in us from such a young age especially if you're in certain cultures or if you just happen to have an environment around you that really emphasizes achievement. But I think that, at least for me, in the last couple of years especially, I've recognized, I think it's easier for me to recognize in other people what I see in them that is more important to me than what they've achieved. Mm -hmm. I definitely feel like maybe not even that long ago, like three or four years ago, I would meet someone and want to know what they achieved, what they had achieved. I mean, I wouldn't really say to them like, "Hey, nice to meet you. What have you achieved?" Mm-hmm. But um, that would be something that I'd be interested in. That's what we talk about, and that would be how you know introductions would get made and things like that. But I think in the last couple of years, I've become so much more aware of other people and how I value them for things that have nothing to do with achievement. That have to do with I don't know the fact that they are willing to talk to me late at night when I'm going through a really hard time or that they're just like a really compassionate and lovely person. And it reminds me that, oh, wait a minute, I really value that person and this person and my mom and, you know, various other people that because of things that have nothing to do with where they went to school or where they've been published or awards. Mm
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's really interesting um that by looking for it in other people we can actually heal it in ourselves I never thought of it that way before
4: yeah I think actually the idea of like looking at other people has been something that's really helped me because i I know that something you have talked about in other interviews is the question of if you haven't been through a major trauma mm-hmm. how can you have like this major life change you know what I'm talking about yeah. it's a question that comes up a lot in in the interviews on this show. And so I've been thinking about that. And I think, again, for me, it's had to do with looking at other people. Like I can say that I've been through traumas, I've been through certain traumas. And so I can't necessarily say like, Oh, yes, I've never been through any traumas. But uh, the idea of looking at other people and just Getting to know people who have been through things themselves and listening to them and kind of, I don't want to say vicariously having the experience through them because it's not exactly that, but like looking at other people, that's something that I think has been really helpful to me.
1: Mm -hmm. You know, I know you said you want to get into it, but I do. You know, you brought up having Asian parents, um, yeah, and I, I, actually do want to dig into this because I think it's an important cultural thing, and it's changing from generation to generation. I mean, I, I can relate to it completely, obviously, mm-hmm. um, given the background that I come from, and I really, I want to hear your thoughts on on navigating that whole thing when you choose to do things that really fall out of line with you know the cultural values that. Um, you've been raised with or somebody like me has been raised with and and how it's affected you how you've handled it and you know what are the challenges with it cuz i know i have my own issues with it
4: oh for sure so i have to say and because i think my parents are probably going to listen to this interview <laughs> but i have to say that my parents are a lot better about this than they were before um i think a story that will always stick in my head is when i had applied to colleges and i remember I had gotten into Brown and I really wanted to go to Brown, but my father was incredibly angry and upset about this. And he said, we're not going to support you emotionally in any way, financially in any way, he said. And I said, well, Brown is an Ivy League school. And I just remember him saying, well, it's not a real Ivy. So that was the kind of scenario I was growing up with. I have to say that, it took a while for them to adjust their perspective. I can't say that I know, I have like some kind of magical formula in terms of if you have strict immigrant Asian parents who, who think about achievement in this kind of way, then you should do this. For me, I think a lot of it had to do with them seeing how much I was struggling. Mm-hmm. I think that the mental illness piece that came into my life really actually kind of dovetailed at the same time as the, the, Hey, I'm actually pretty much committing to writing in my life. They had a really hard time accepting the mental illness piece as well. Mm
3: -hmm.
4: And it was, it was a very similar kind of thing. I had times with my parents where, you know, my mother would say things like, how could you do this to us? We've, always given you everything you've always wanted, things like that. But as they saw that I was having a hard time with my mental health and as they saw that writing was something that I was good at and that I was really determined to pursue, I think that both of those things kind of aligned in a way. mm mm-hmm.
1: You know, I think it's it's interesting that that's how you found it. And, you know, it's funny you brought up mental illness because I think that even that in Asian and, you know, Indian cultures has almost a similar stigma to doing things that go against the conventional norms. Um, it's just something we don't talk about. It's like, you know, doing that. that's like you're just written off as crazy and that's it.
4: Yeah, exactly. So my like one story I have about that is so the first time I went to a psychiatrist, my mother came me and the psychiatrist did the whole intake then he asked my mother so is there any mental illness in the family she said no at the time I didn't know any differently now I know that you know we had a great aunt she had a great aunt who um who had actually been institutionalized she was like the stereotypical mad woman in the attic who was actually kept in the attic and a lot of tragic things happened to her and there was a cousin who had committed suicide. There were all these things. And later I asked her, why didn't you say anything back then? Like it was a doctor asking you. And she said something like, we don't talk about those things.
1: Mm-hmm.
4: Which, yeah, I mean, it is it a very similar kind of thing. Like we just don't talk about those things.
1: Yeah, no, that's, uh, it's it's really, it's such a, it's, it's unfortunate, but I mean, I think it's also changing from generation to generation, right? Like, I mean, I, my parents, I, I'm first generation, you know, so that I mm-hmm. think you, it sounds like you are too, like, you mm-hmm. know, if your parents came from that sort of era. And it, it's, it's interesting, because what they're seeing is a, a, a radical shift. And it's going to be really interesting to see what, you know, this next generation of kids, um, you know, are, are like, when it comes to all of these things, like how these cultural narratives are going to change.
4: Yeah, exactly. I I gave a talk at the Chinatown Mental Health Clinic in San Francisco a couple of years ago. And while I, when I went there, I actually thought a lot about this because I was thinking, all oh, right, who are these people who are coming to the Chinatown Mental Health Clinic? Like these are people who probably largely don't really speak English at all or very well. And they're bringing in their family members I'm imagining it was mostly people bringing their family members, but I did wonder a lot: Are these people just at their wit's end, and they don't know what else to do, or is there more acceptance than I thought there was in the community?
1: Mm -hmm. Well, let's do this. Let's uh, let's shift gears a a bit, and you know, I want to get more in depth into the sort of the darker period of this story, um, where you're dealing with you know a very clearly what is a severe mental illness like the you know the delusions all of that i mean i can't imagine how painful something like that must be and i guess you know the real question for me is when you're going through something like that i mean how do you how do you keep i mean how do you see a light at the end of the tunnel in something like that
4: i would have to say that there are definitely times So I'm just going to use the guitars delusion period as an example, because I think that was probably one of the worst times. Mm -hmm. There were definitely hours and days where there was no light at the end of the tunnel, essentially. There was, uh, so I had previously mentioned periods during the delusion where I believed that I was in hell. I think the, this sounds so morbid and it is morbid, but I think the only thing that kept me from trying to end my life was the belief that I was already dead. Like I was already in hell. So in my weird logic, it did not occur to me because if I were already dead, there was no point in trying to kill myself in other times where I've been more aware, where I've had more insight, where things are really terrible and I'm experiencing different aspects of psychosis, but I have enough awareness to know that I am sick. I think, uh, there's no I don't know. I don't have like a magic a magic saying or like something that I hold on to, but there's this kind of very deeply held optimism that I have, and it's very hard for me to describe myself as an optimist. I used to jokingly call myself a pessimistic optimist, mm-hmm. but there is this deeply held optimism that I had where. I would really, really be convinced that everything was bad, but there was always that part of me that kept going. And again, I really feel like writing has helped me a lot. I don't necessarily mean journaling and things like that. I think journaling and and you know, morning pages and things like that are very valuable for some people. um, and I certainly journal myself, but it was actually. Being able to, when I had enough cognitive ability, being able to structure things into prose, that really helped me to put my mind together in a way. Mm
2: -hmm.
4: Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans
3: from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds.
1: Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me.
3: Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great, too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans.
2: So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch.
3: $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com.
0: Let's talk about aging. It's inevitable, right? But what if I told you there's a new way to age led by Solgar Cellular Nutrition? They believe, and I do too, that you can transform the way you age cell by cell with the power of cellular nutrition. So let's own our healthy aging narrative. Visit CellularNutrition.Solgar.com to learn more. Again, that's CellularNutrition.Solgar.com to learn more. Solgar Cellular Nutrition. We go cell deep. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease.
1: Well, let me ask you this. Um, I mean, when you're experiencing this kind of a delusion, when what is your day-to-day life like? I mean, what is walking around the world like? I mean what do you experience?
4: Okay, so um, walking around the world or walking around the world is an interesting way of putting it because a lot of the time I do not walk around at all. So when I was having this most recent episode that was so bad, I actually spent most of it in bed. So the kind of symptoms that I was having did involve a lot of what they decided was um, a kind of catatonia, like they call it like catatonic psychosis. And I don't necessarily have to get into that. Like it, it involves a lot of like an inability in some cases, an inability to move or like do anything. It's also, it also involves a lot of internal agitation. So inside it's like things are, crazy. But on the outside, there's like this very much, very much of a lack of moving around and lack of movement. So during that time, I actually had uh, relatives sometimes. So my brother and my sister in law live in the city as well. I live in San Francisco. And my sister in law would come over and sit with me. Or we had a a care calendar where friends would sign up and come and sit with me because it did help me to have someone present even if we weren't necessarily communicating with one another. Now, that was when things were so bad that I was not really talking or you know, communicating much with people, but there were definitely times where I was able to, like you said, walk around in the world. So you're walking around in the world and say I was just like, taking a walk, you know, down the block or whatever, there was so much of an experience of faking it, just walking down the street and being like, all right, I am telling myself that I'm walking down the street. I sincerely do not believe this is true, but I'm going to tell myself that this is what is happening. There is what is called a tree. I believe that must be a tree. I don't think it is. And I'm pretty sure it's not, but there's a lot of um, there's a lot of play acting that goes on for me when I'm having these episodes.
1: Mm-hmm. So. Now, are th- is it something you still deal with on a regular basis?
4: So, that's an interesting question. So, um, going back to like what my psychiatrist was saying when I had that awful um, appointment with her. At that time, we really didn't know what was going to happen. We didn't know if this kind, this level of psychosis was going to be something that was in my life 80% of the time, 60% of the time, 90% of the time. And I really have to say, we don't know. That's the thing. I don't know if three hours from now I could have another episode and I don't know how long it would last and I'm not sure what the next steps would be, but it's a very uncertain diagnosis to live with.
1: Hmm.
4: Wow. That sounds so grim, but <laughs> I, I, I'm not like walking around the world going like, Oh, things could go horribly at any moment. Um, like I, I do things, uh, you know, I, I, I just went to WDS, sure. which is where I met you. At, um, and, and, uh, and I, you know, go to movies and I, have brunch with friends and things like that but yeah there is very much that thing in the back of my mind that's like all right well remember that you have to enjoy this moment where you're lying in a hammock and you're reading a book because dot 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 Mm -hmm. yeah
1: yeah wow it's you know i think one of the things that i i I really love love about what you're talking about is that you you seem to have this deep appreciation for life in even the most ordinary of moments and i think that's hard for us to do because we're always you know forgetting the ordinary in search of the extraordinary uh i I know because it's you're always looking for that next achievement which kind of takes us back to the beginning of our conversation
4: totally and i'm not i'm not going to say that i don't think about achievement anymore that I don't get excited when something good happens to me in terms of achievement but I do find it interesting how there's a lot of discussion going around about appreciating ordinary moments mm-hmm. and I'm I'm really glad that conversation is happening but I also think that it's very easy to lapse out of that kind of mentality
1: So let me ask you this. I mean, you mentioned it's easy to lapse out of that kind of mentality. So let's talk about how we maintain it and cultivate it on a daily basis.
4: Sure. So I don't know how other people do it, but, oh, actually I have like a a side note that I could talk about, which is I have been hearing from a lot of people like, all right, so I'm keeping a gratitude journal. I am going to write down like five things I'm grateful for. And I actually read so I was doing that for a while because I thought, why not? Like, why not write down things you're grateful for? That sounds great. But I was reading, ai have been reading a book recently called Hardwiring Happiness. Mm-hmm. And it's by, I believe he's a neuroscientist, where he talks about how we're hardwired toward a negative bias, which, you know, he explains it from an evolutionary standpoint. Um, it's the reason that 10 good things could happen to you, but then like one person says something Bad to you, and then you obsess about that for like three weeks. Um, but it makes sense in terms of survival. Like you want to remember that one time you ate the poison berry and not the 10 times that you, you know, ate some leaves and they were fine. So his whole thing is about taking a, a moment and remembering and holding on to them for, I think he says 10 to 20 seconds. So you experience this moment. And instead of just, like, letting it go by the way we let so many things go by, you try to, like, hold on to that feeling of happiness or joy or whatever and, like, just, like, hold on to it for about half a, half a minute. Mm-hmm. And so ever since I read that, I've been thinking a lot about this idea of gratitude, about, like, ordinary moments and things like that. And I've been very consciously doing this thing Where if I notice that I'm experiencing happiness, I say to myself in my head, click. And to me, that's the internal camera happening. Like I'm taking a snapshot of that moment. And then I imagine myself holding on to that moment for 10 to 20 seconds.
1: Hmm. I love that. Makes me think about uh, surfing and how I need to hold on to the waves that I catch a little bit longer.
4: (laughs) Yeah, like uh, with surfing, do you like you I'm. I mean, I'm sure you feel happiness and joy when you do that. Mm-hmm. Do you feel like after it's after you're done surfing, does that last for? Oh for yeah, it lasts you- for
1: a couple of hours. I mean, and that's that's why you always keep going back for more. It's it's that's what makes it so addictive. Is that you you get mm-hmm. this just overwhelming sense of joy and peace and um, you know calm. I mean, unlike anything that I've ever experienced. But you know, I never thought of it in terms of it, because you know what you do when you're in the water is you much like our, our achievement conversation you catch a wave you paddle right back and all you're doing is sitting there waiting for the next wave <laughs> you know you're like damn it like all right how long is it going to take before i get the next one but uh but no I, i'd never thought of it in terms of okay you know what savor the one you just had for about 20 seconds that's pretty cool
4: yeah just like hold on to it and like remember that the feelings that were going through your body but this reminds me of like you talking about surfing reminds me of the way that i approach writing mm-hmm. like it's do you ever quote unquote forget that surfing is good to do for you?
1: Um you know, I mean when the when the conditions suck <laughs> <laughs> you know, I get in the water and it's lousy, then yeah, that that happens. But no, okay. yeah, that's about that's usually about the only time.
4: Okay. Okay. No, that's great then, because I think it's really easy for me to forget that things like, you know, sitting down and shutting off the internet and writing for like 90 minutes is quote unquote good for me or that it brings me a sense of satisfaction and joy that I don't necessarily get from other things. Mm-hmm. I, I definitely have like a practice and I work on it really hard, but I think in between, I tend to have the kind of like, uh, that's, that's hard. I don't know if I want to do that. So I was curious mm-hmm. if you had a similar thing with, with surfing. Well, let's
1: do this. Let's shift gears and let's uh, let's start talking about writing specifically. And you know, I love the way you phrase this. You know, writing your way through the thing, the story of the things that have happened to you. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, expand on that, and then we'll start talking specifically about the craft of writing itself.
4: Sure. So, the first really big writing project that I took on was the novel that I mentioned. That took five years, and. Even though it wasn't an autobiographical novel in any sense, it was. it's like this sprawling thing about like multi-generational families and blah, blah, blah. But there was definitely an element of writing through certain things that I was going on, going through at the time. Or I remember I wrote a short story at the time that had to do with the question of, is there ever a time when suicide makes sense? you know, other, yeah. So is there ever a time when suicide makes sense? I was dealing with a really difficult friendship at the time. And that, that it was a friend who was constantly suicidal and this person's life seemed pretty awful. And so I was actually faced with the question for the first time of like, okay, I love this person, but this person has been going through x y and z for so long and this person keeps talking about suicide has tried so many times is there ever a time when it makes sense and so I wrote my way through that that was through fiction and in the novel that I was working on I also wrote about mental illness, it was something that one of the characters was going through. And again, it wasn't autobiographical, but it was my way of processing things. And I'm currently working on a book about schizophrenia. It's a collection of essays. And so the essay that I was talking about earlier about Qatar's delusion, I remember when I started it, I was lying in bed and It was one of those days where I couldn't really move or do anything. And I had my iPad and I remember like tapping out the words, I am writing this as a dead person. And that was the beginning of the essay. The line is actually still basically the same in the essay as it is now. So yeah, I wrote through that. The, that was how I how I kept things together in a way. Well, let me
1: ask you this: How do we, uh, you know, write our own way through the stories of what's happened to us?
4: Yeah, that's a good question. So I would say, well, first of all, I don't know if everybody. I don't know if everybody has writing as the thing that's for them, mm-hmm. but for the people for whom writing can be that thing. It doesn't mean that you have to consider yourself like a capital W writer or whatever, or that you want to devote 10,000 hours of your life to mastering writing or whatnot. But I think a lot of it has to do with getting it down, getting down whatever is happening. And it has to do with, again, like narrative, right? So like the narrative of brokenness, what is this narrative that you're creating now? For me, with a guitar's delusion essay, it was the narrative of right now I am dead and this is what this is like. And by the time I was out of the Guitar's delusion, I was able to piece together the parts of what was going on when I was in it and then describing, having like a structure for it. I think so much of storytelling is about holding things together through structure. I, for me, storytelling has always had so much to do with feeling like things are just going to fall apart if they're not held together by narrative. Mm-hmm.
1: So you you brought up this narrative of brokenness uh, once at the beginning of our conversation. And again, and you mentioned you know that everybody you have met has had some degree of this narrative of brokenness. And you probably know exactly where I'm going with this since you've heard my interviews. Uh, Mm -hmm. How do you shift that narrative of brokenness?
4: Well, I think that like with a narrative about anything, it has to do with writing a different story. So another thing that I've found helpful, and this is very specific to psychosis, but stick with me because I think it has to do with life in general as well. So I found that when I feel like I'm starting to have another episode of psychosis and this has happened a couple of times in the last, you know, 4 months or something. What I'll actually do is I'll sit down and write a narrative of how I think it's going to go. Except it's not the narrative that I tended to carry around with me, which was, "Oh my gosh, I'm having these issues and now I'm going to be crazy forever. And then I'm just going to end up in an institution somewhere and I'm going to die. So I started writing these narratives of right now, like, or like a month ago, Esme was going through this X, Y, and Z happened. And then she did X, Y, and Z things. And after a while, things got a lot better. That sounds extremely simplistic, but it's basically kind of what I do. And I think that That can be extrapolated to life in general. Just creating a new narrative, I think, has so much to do with it. It's
1: really just, you know, writing a different story, like taking the experience of something that has happened and, and basically saying, okay, this is what has happened. And you can tell one of two stories about it and you choose to tell a different one.
4: Right, and I think it has to do with also with like when you tell the narrative of brokenness mm-hmm. over and over and over again, like you're telling yourself, you're like telling other people, you like meet someone and you're like, "Here's my narrative of brokenness." Nice to meet you. <laughs> um, it, it kind of wears a groove in your brain, like it gets deeper and deeper, and then that narrative narrative is everything. So I'm kind of I've kind of been playing with the idea of like, all right, so what if you take That narrative that you've been using for a really long time and then you do a new one, Mm -hmm. what happens then? And then what happens if you start to wear that groove down into your brain and into your life?
1: Wow. I love that. (laughs) That is truly, truly profound. Um, well, let's do this. I, you know, I want to spend a, a little bit of time, um, talking specifically about the craft of writing and developing a voice, um, uh, in, in the world. You know, it, it's something that I have spent a lot of time thinking about. It's a question that I've asked a lot of writers. So talk to me, I mean, you know, having been formally trained as a writer and having, you know, all these experiences, I mean, talk to me about this idea of developing a voice and also the craft of writing and, and kind of how you view all of it.
4: Hmm. Yeah, that's really interesting. I I think that when I started writing, I definitely did a lot of what writers tend to do when they're starting, which is a lot of mimicry. So you can look at earlier writing of mine and you can see, okay, that was definitely when Esme was reading a lot of Nabokov, or that was definitely when she was reading David Foster Wallace for the first time. So I think there's like this period of playing around with other people's voices. And uh, at least for me, it had a lot to do with, and I wouldn't say, oh yes, my voice is completely cemented now and it will never change because I found my one true pure voice. But I think that the voice that I currently write with and the one that feels natural to me is one that kind of gelled over like composting all of these other people's voices and reading a lot. I think that was one that may have been the most important thing that happened to me in terms of going to a formal MFA program was I was forced to read a lot of things that I wouldn't have read otherwise. Like I read Moby Dick. I wouldn't have read Moby Dick otherwise. I had to read Middlemarch. They had a whole reading list and like a reading exam but I really appreciated that because I got to experience all of these different kinds of writing and all of that just kind of composted in my head and came out in my writing as I was practicing and spending all of these hours, like drinking coffee and gin and tonics, like alternately um, at my friend's studio apartment and writing for like, you know, hours and hours. Um, And so in the end, I think, to keep going with the whole composting thing, just like something sprouting out of the compost. That was what ended up happening.
1: Hmm. You know, I, I really appreciate that you brought up, um, you know, reading so many different writers and being exposed to so many different things. And I think that uh, I'm as guilty of this as anybody, and I brought this up before, uh, of reading a very similar type of work. You know, everybody's like, oh, read this self-improvement book, read this business (laughs) book. But um, it's when I started exploring stuff that, you know, I probably wouldn't have otherwise read. That's probably some of the most influential stuff. And the way I see looking at other styles of writing is that, uh, yeah, I mean, maybe we do all start out with a bit of mimicry. And at some point, I think there's a place where you have to say, you know, I'm going to stop consuming anything for a while to get back in touch with my own voice. And I found that that was one of the most useful things I ever did, where, I said, you know, I'm not going to read any books for a while, and I'm just going to write. Mm. Um, so it's, I think it's it's an interesting balance between those two things, at least for me.
4: Yeah, I definitely know a lot of people who, um, who are writers who, when they're working on something, when they're working on a big project, refuse to read any books. Mm-hmm while they're doing that, then I have friends who always have to write with like a stack of books next to them. But yeah, there's definitely that aspect of like, all right, so you take in all this input and sometimes you just have to set it aside.
1: Mm -hmm. Well, let's do this. Um, So talk to me about the last piece that you mentioned uh, that, you know, now this is possibly being optioned for a film, uh, (laughs) which is really, really cool. I mean, I can't imagine that you've probably figured in a million years that this is where, um, you know, the path would lead you.
4: No, not at all. So uh, what would you like to know about it?
1: Well, talk to me about, you know, how, kind of how it's gone down, what's going to happen next and, and you know, where, where things are at.
4: So what happened was uh, after I finished it and, you know, went through the whole editing process and got it to where I wanted it to be, I found a home for it um, online, website. And then it just kind of took off from there in a way that I really wasn't expecting. It, you know, got shared, it was shared a lot and things like that, but then it ended up, you know, like I mentioned before, getting picked up by a lot of other websites who then went ahead and recommended it. So like the New Yorker online, um, the MIT science journalism blog wrote like an entire blog post about it. There was just a lot of attention that I wasn't expecting. And then this thing that I think is absolutely not and I I don't in terms of the tv film thing and I don't know what's going to happen with that Mm -hmm. but it's they're in talks right now so I'm just kind of letting that be what it's going to be regardless of what happens with that I'm just really excited that it even was an option
1: Mm -hmm. yeah it's interesting right we we get these things that happen in our lives and um you know, we, it seems like something might come, but often we're, we're not satisfied with the first thing. It's like, Hey, we just had this amazing thing happen. And then, it, you know, it's like, Oh, well, it's not enough. <laughs> you know? Um, so I really appreciate that you said you're just sort of enjoying the fact that it has happened, you know, which I think really does. It, it makes almost a, a really perfect way to wrap up our conversation. So, um, I want to close with, with my final question, which you've heard me ask a thousand times. Uh, you know, what do you think, uh, makes something or somebody unmistakable?
4: I think that what makes somebody unmistakable, I think that people would argue with me on this one, but that's okay. Cause I'm going to take a stand. I think a certain level of obsessiveness hmm. is some is what I, is what I've noticed in people that I would consider unmistakable. So, you know, in people that I've observed, especially artists, artists and writers, there's this kind of like obsessiveness that happens. And like, I'll tell my own little story, which is that in college, I was in an art class, in a drawing class, and I became really obsessed with the idea of drawing pictures of food lovers really close up. But it was the kind of like obsessiveness where I couldn't eat a meal and, you know, just put the leftovers like, you know, I don't know whatever happens to leftovers when you're eating a meal when you're in college. Mm-hmm. Um yeah, there was, it was just like this obsessiveness. I think that happens when I look at like other artists or like when I look at I know I was watching the Andy Goldsworthy documentary of Rivers and Tides and I was just blown his obsessiveness, like this quality of going after something and letting it kind of absorb your whole life and okay, maybe that sounds kind of unhealthy. Sometimes it is kind of unhealthy, but there's the aspect of just really diving super deeply into something that appeals to me and that I think causes certain people to come out as quite unmistakable.
1: Awesome. Well, I think that makes a beautiful way to close up our conversation. Uh, Esme, uh, I can't thank you enough for uh, taking the time to join us and share some of your insights with our listeners here at The Unmistakable Creative.
4: Thank you so much.
1: Yeah. And for those of you guys listening, we'll wrap the show with that. You've been listening to the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. Visit our website at unmistakablecreative.com and get access to over 400 interviews in our archives.
3: Selling a little? Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work.
0: Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch.